times. But God declares that this covenant will be everlasting. He's referring to the new covenant, which is what we're talking about. So you're going to see, I've got a chart up here, a comparison, maybe a back and forth, of the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. When you break these things down, the old covenant was temporary. The new covenant is everlasting. In the old covenant, the, the laws were written on stones, referring to the Ten Commandments, and obviously there were more laws than that. But the new covenant will be written on their hearts. It required the blood of animals to atone, but it was the blood of Christ that removed sin from us. Many, many sacrifices were done. Many animals killed in the sake here, in the namesake here. But there's one permanent sacrifice in the new, and that's Jesus. It, the, the old covenant was mediated by Moses. He was the one that was writ, wrote the law down. He was the one that transacted the covenant in the first place, and he's the one that kept it. The, ours is mediated by Jesus. He is our great high priest that mediates for us. The old covenant anticipates forgiveness, but the new covenant, forgiveness is finally realized. In the old covenant, nobody had the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit would come upon people, but He would lift. Here, the Holy Spirit is promised to all who would believe. God is approached through the high priest in the old covenant, but Jesus is our high priest. Now we can be in the presence of God. And the old covenant was celebrated by sacrifices, all pointing to the cross. They were anticipated, but we celebrate it by communion because we look back at the finished work of Jesus Christ, the finished work of the cross. I mean, it's incredible when you look at the comparisons here. It's incredible when you understand how all of these things point to what Jesus did. And so in order to get into this, into the New Testament section of this, we've got to look at Hebrews chapter 8. The book of Hebrews is a great place when you start to learn about the different covenants. And you see these things come together because he's talking to whom? The Hebrews. The Israelites, specifically. Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 6. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also a mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second, because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord. Now this should sound familiar. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue, continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Verse 13. In that he says a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. We're separating the old and the new covenant. There's a difference. They do not intertwine. The commandments of the old covenant are not the commandments of the new covenant. The old covenant anticipated the new. It brought us to the new. And thank God for it. And thank God for Israel doing what they did, being obedient as much as they were, but bringing in the new covenant. They went through a lot so that you and I could be here right now. I mean, a lot. You know, for anybody who says that Israel is unimportant, is missing God, big time. I'm not going to get off on that tangent. But here's where we are. We're under this new covenant, but they will say that it doesn't mean that the stipulations of the old are done away with. That we're the, in other words, that we should still, as believers, should in some way or another be 
keeping the, the laws, the commandments and stuff of the Old Testament. A lot of times you'll see this come out of Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5, starting in verse 7, says, Do not think, this is Jesus speaking, that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I do not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For surely I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one, it's a yacht is how you say that, one jot or one tittle, will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. A yacht or a tittle would be like how we would say the crossing of a T or the dotting of an I. Um, it almost looks like a blemish on the paper because it's so minute. And Jesus is saying that I did not come to do away with the law. If he had done that, then he could not be the mediator of the new covenant because he would have transgressed the law that God laid out. He came to fulfill. What does fulfill mean? It means to bring to fruition. It means to complete all. When we fulfill something, we are completing something. And he's saying, I didn't come to just throw that away. I came to fulfill it. You see in Luke 16... In verse 15 it says, And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Now look at verse 16. The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached, and everyone is pressing into it. And you'll hear this familiar line. And it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one jot or tittle of the law to fail. What's he saying? John the Baptist, the greatest prophet according to Jesus, came. That all the law, all the prophets were until that point. But since then, we're now preaching the kingdom of God. It's no longer a kingdom of works. It's no longer that we can do anything to try to earn our righteousness. And technically, neither could they. It was always by faith. But yet, it was this righteousness. And of course, this thing took on a life of its own because there were so many things that, that were man-made traditions that they were forcing upon them. And Jesus addresses that a lot. Jesus didn't come to throw out the law. He came to fulfill it. Something that no man could do. And we're going to see this fulfillment happen a little bit later. But in understanding the new covenant, we need to understand that this new covenant was cut on behalf of the house of Israel and the house of Judah. We are partakers of this because we are grafted into the body of Christ. Israel was God's people, His elect, His chosen people. Because of them, we are grafted because of the promise to Abraham. Let's look at Romans chapter 11. I told you we've got a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of verses. Romans 11, we're going to start in verse 11. It says, I say then, have they humbled that they should fall? This is referring to Israel. Certainly not, but through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Side note, if you want to learn something about the, the um, future of Israel, Romans 9 is their past, Romans 10 is their present at that time, Romans 11 is the future of Israel. Verse 12, now if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentile, how much more their fullness? What's he talking about? The fullness, they're, they're coming to Christ. For I speak to you Gentiles. So who is he talking to in Romans? He's talking to the Gentiles. Inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. Now who are his flesh? The Israelites. This is Paul talking. For if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? 
For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off, and you being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. Pause there. What's the root? It's Christ. Verse 19, you will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said, because of unbelief, they were broken off. And you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. Now, what's he talking about? Israel was set aside for a time because of their unbelief. They rejected the Messiah. And he said, because until the fullness of the Gentiles come in, that's, that's going to continue. Verse 21, for if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell severity, but toward you, goodness, if you continue in his goodness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off, and they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. And we're going to talk about what grafting is here in just a minute. For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to the nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, who are natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, and he calls it a mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, as it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away from ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but concerning the election... They are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For as you were once disobedient to God, yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience, even so these also have been disobedient that through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. For God has committed them all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. Okay, we just read a lot and we broke that down a little bit as we went. But the bottom line is this is that Israel rejected Christ. And because of that, we are grafted into the body of Christ. Now, some have made the mistake to saying we are grafted into Israel. Israel, as he just said, that they were cut off from the tree, but they can be grafted back in. So we can't be grafted into Israel because they were cut off. So what are we grafted into? The root, which is Christ. It's the body of Christ. It's not Israel. So what I'm telling you is the church did not replace Israel. I think we all understand that, but I'm going to hammer it off because I have conversations often about these things that people do not understand this stuff. We are not Israel. Israel is not us. When we come together, we're one new man called the body of Christ. We are all one in Christ. But natural Israel, the nation of Israel, has a separate calling, a separate future than what we do. Christ is the root. When we look at what grafting is, it is something that happens with, you'll see it a lot with trees. Now, these, I've got a couple of pictures here to, to put up to give you an idea. Grafting is taking the branch of one tree and attaching it to a tree of another, and it will begin to produce whatever the fruit was from that branch. Have you ever done this, Yoli? You're a, you're a hoarder of culture. They've, they've shown me pictures where, and you can kind of see that, that up there has 40 different types of fruit that grow simultaneously. So I don't know how all the process, but they put it in there. Somehow they tie it up there. If it's an apple tree and you, you graft in an orange branch, that branch still produces oranges. It's bizarre. It's weird. I didn't even know that was real. I'd never actually put this together until a few years ago. But this is an actual thing. 
And so in here you see a bunch, these are not tied up vegetables or fruit or whatever those things are. Those are actual things that they, they, they make these trees. I actually watched a documentary on this. It's kind of fascinating. If you ever have an hour to kill or you need a nap, find that documentary. But what is he showing us here? That Christ did away with the old covenant because he fulfilled it. This means that anyone who enters into this new covenant, Jew or Gentile, are now together in the body of Christ. Now, there was a word that was used there in the the previous passage. It says, um, concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers, for the gifts and callings of God are irrevocable. This election, okay? Let me talk about this for one second. Perhaps you've heard the term, the elect, the chosen. More often than not, when you read that in your New Testament, the elect are is Israel. Natural Israel. In other words, what I'm, what I'm addressing is Calvinists, where they say that in order to become a Christian, you have to be elect by God. God chose you and not you. So you're in, you're out, because God chose. That's not what that is talking about. It's election. Look in the Old Testament. Who were the chosen people? Who were the elect of God? It's always Israel. Why do we think that would change in the New Testament? Because we have, again, remember, if we start from a bad place, we're going to end up with a bad finish. We have to start with a proper foundation of Scripture. The elect did not change. The elect is still Israel. So it's referring to Israel specifically. But the gifts and callings are irrevocable. What's that talking about? The calling that God had for Israel. Even though they rejected the Messiah, that doesn't mean He's done with them. When we properly exegete this stuff and go through it very slowly, anybody who dismisses Israel is foolish. They are missing the heart of God. Flip over to Galatians chapter 3. Starting at verse 1. O foolish Galatians, that would be a good place to start. Who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? In other words, they saw it happen. This only I want, clear, uh, want you to learn from you, excuse me, this only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish having begun in the Spirit? Are you now being made perfect by the flesh? He's talking about the Old Testament. He's getting back to that Old Covenant law. How did you receive the Spirit? Was it this or was it the fact that you obtained it by faith? Verse 4, have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of the faith? Now, who supplies the Spirit? God does. How does he do it? By faith. Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, and we read that, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. Who are the seeds of Abraham? Who did he just say? Anybody who believes in faith, not works of the law. He's separating those that they're holding that were the Old Testament, they've got to keep doing this. No, Jesus fulfilled that. Anybody who believes in faith is now a seed of Abraham. And this is all stuff that was laid out prophetically in the Old Testament. And then the New Testament makes it very clear. Paul is explaining this. You and I are the seed of Abraham because we have received it by faith. Okay? Romans 9, verse 1. Look at this. I tell you the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. Remember, Romans 9 is dealing with the past of Israel, 
okay? That I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart, for I, I could wish that I myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh, who are Israelites to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises. So who are that? Who are Israelites? They pertain to the adoption, the, 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 the glory, the covenants, the giving, all of this different stuff, talking about Israelites, of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. He's just telling us, who did Christ come through? Israel. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are Israel. Well, that's an interesting statement. Nor are they all children, because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called, that is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. Now, when you read this slowly, you might pick up on stuff. They are not all Israel who are Israel. He's beginning to separate that just being born an Israelite does not make you a child of God. You are not automatically grafted into the body of Christ because of your nationality. It's by faith. The same rules apply to them that apply to us. Now, what are we addressing here? There's a teaching out there called dual covenant that is simply saying that the Israelites have a different, different new covenant than what you and I have, and that at the time of death, Christ will appear to them right before, and they have the opportunity to reject Him or accept Him. There's nothing biblical about that, and these are good people that are saying this. It's very easy to get off on these little little intricacies, but we have to stay true to the Word. In other words, who is Israel? Those who come to Christ by faith. Okay, Spiritually speaking, because he's addressing that. The seeds of the Amor are the children of the promise, are counted as a seed. So being born in Israel doesn't make you a child of God. You're not automatically in. Flip back to Romans 2. We'll see this again. Verse 17. Indeed, you are called a Jew, and you rest on the law, and make your boast in God, and know His will, and approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and the truth in the law. You therefore teach another. Do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You, that, you who abhor, abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. That should sound familiar. We read that a little while ago. As it is written, for the circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you who, even with your written code and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? Now watch this. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and the circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the leather, whose praise is not from men, but from God. So what did he just tell us? It's not something of the flesh, 
It is something of the heart. It's not a keeping of the law that makes you right. It's the circumcision of your heart that's done by the Holy Spirit. He who is, no, who is not a Jew, he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, but one who is one inwardly. In other words, we, we keep, how did they come into the covenant with God? Under the Abraham covenant, they had to be circumcised. You couldn't come in under that covenant without that. He's saying that that now means nothing because Abraham was not considered righteous because he was circumcised. He was considered righteous by his faith and then later fulfilled the requirement of the covenant. You see that all the time. You see Moses constantly. You need to circumcise your heart. You're under the covenant, but you need to circumcise your heart. In other words, that you've done all the actions that seem to be required, but your heart is a long ways from God. It is always a matter of the heart. Look at Galatians 4, starting in verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise. Now he's talking about Hagar. And Sarah, according to the flesh, because they didn't believe God strong enough, I guess, and so went off and had a child with Hagar instead of waiting for the promise. 24, which things are symbolic? Okay, so he's saying there's some symbolism going on here of what happened. For these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is and is bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. Now let's stop there for a second. He's comparing bondage with the old covenant and freedom or the grace with the new is what he's saying. We're children of the promise. We're entered in because of the promise. And he's really addressing that. Do you think now that you've entered into to relationship with God through grace that it's of any use to go back underneath that old law? Does that make you closer to God? Does that bring you closer to Him and make you understand Him more? Not necessarily. Verse 27, For it is written, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For the desolate has many more children than she who is a husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of the promise. But as he who was born according to the flesh then persecuted him, who was born according to the Spirit, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what does the Scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. Now this is significant because Paul is, is separating. And Paul was an Israelite. Is an Israelite. I shouldn't say was. He is. I mean, he was a Jew. He was one of them. He was a higher up. And he is separating all of this stuff. And look at this. He's saying that we have to separate a couple of things. First of all, it is the separating of the old covenant and the new. We just see that. It's very obvious. It's also showing that being born Israel doesn't make you Israel when it comes to the new covenant. It's a matter of the heart. Not election, but it's a matter of the heart. Election does not mean salvation. We need to understand that. Because one is elect does not make them saved in the terms that you and I would use. Okay? Moses told them constantly to circumcise their hearts. Right? All the time that they had to do this. They weren't made right just because of that covenant. They still had to do things. 
And Moses said, you need to circumcise your heart. If you circumcise your heart, it's no longer just doing the acts just because. And many times in the New Testament, you see them because they want to be seen by men. But you're doing it because of a love for the Father, that you love Him, that you want to serve Him. And Moses said, you've got to circumcise your heart. And so when we get to this new covenant, you see, and there's many, many, many more that are separating this thing. But we need to understand this, is that, and remember, we're always answering these questions. Who was the covenant cut for or between? Um, what was the sign? All of that kind of stuff. The covenant here was cut between the Father and the Son. It was cut between the Father and the Son. It was done before the foundations of the earth. So similar to how God cut the covenant with Abraham where he put him asleep and it was just God that, that fulfilled the requirements, it was Father and Son that did this. 2 Timothy 1, start at verse 8. Oh, man. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began, but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. He just said it was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. When did time begin? Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, time starts. We now have time. Before that, it was given to us. But now, it's been revealed to us. So it was given to us back then, but now it's been revealed. Look at John 10, starting in verse 7. Then Jesus said to them again, Most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come to, except to steal and to kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and what the, that they may have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for his sheep. But a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep and am known by them. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. What's he talking about? Jew and Gentiles coming together, one flock, one shepherd. We, we're coming together as one. Therefore my Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. Let's pause there. When did Jesus receive this command? There's nothing in the New Testament that says, Thus saith the Lord, go die on the cross. We see in this other verse that we just read in 2 Timothy that was before time began. And you can see different parts of this throughout the Old Testament. Therefore, there was a division again among the Jews because of these sayings. And many of them said, he has a demon and is mad. Why do you listen to him? That would seem to be a common response back then. Others said, these are not the words of one who has a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blinds? Now, it was the Feast of Dedication in Jerusalem and it was winter. Feast of Dedication is Hanukkah, just so you know. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch, and then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Quit with all the weird language. Just say, are you him? Are you not him? Can we move on with life? We don't know what's going on. 
Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. As I said to you, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. And they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand, and I and my Father are one. Who asked him that question? It was Israel. It was the Jews, right? Are you the Messiah? Just tell us. What did he say? You do not believe because you are not of my sheep, because my sheep know my voice. What does this tell us again? Being elect, being born Israel, does not make you right with God. Right? I think we can see that pretty pretty plainly. This covenant was laid out between the Father and the Son before the foundation of the world. And Jesus knew exactly what He was here to do. He knew His marching orders. They were given to Him at the very, very beginning. What were His marching orders? Let's look at Luke 4. We're almost done, I promise. Luke 4, verse 16. So he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. That would be Saturday. And stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recover sight to the blind. And set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? He spoke that with such command. Because he knew it. That was, that was why he was here. What were his marching orders? He just read it. To preach the gospel to the poor. To heal the brokenhearted. To proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are pro- pro- oppressed and proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And later on you say, he came to destroy the works of the devil. All things. That includes sickness. That includes everything that, that is not of the original uh, covenant that God set out with Adam, how we should be living divinely. He came to destroy all of that. It's good. This is what he came to do. He explicitly identifies his body and blood in the new covenant that's promised in the Old Testament when we look at these different parts of a communion service, right? We see that. And some would say that communion is the sign of the new covenant. I would disagree with that statement. And I'll get to why here in just a second. Because in some circles, they have an overemphasis on communion and what it is. Okay? We'll talk about that a little bit more in, in, in a minute. But they, they will say that when you enter the new sign, every time you enter in, it's almost like you're re-entering. You're re-crucifying Jesus by the communion. I would disagree with that. Here's what I was, turn over to Colossians 2. I'm going to say there are two signs. Colossians 2 and verse 11. In Him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh 
by the circumcision of Christ, buried with Him in baptism, in which you also were raised with Him through faith in the working of God, who raised Him from the dead. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He has made alive together with Him, having forgiven you all trespasses. There are two signs, in my opinion, this is my opinion, okay? Thus saith Chris, all right? That you're circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. In other words, you've circumcised your heart. In other words, you've given your life to Christ. You have made this confession to Him. And you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead and you are saved would be the terminology we would use. That is a sign that will have lasting fruit. It's a sign between us and God. The other part of that sign would be water baptism. It says that you were buried with Him in baptism and raised with him through faith in the working of God. What is baptism signifying? That we're going into the grave as the old man goes into the grave, the new man comes out, just like Christ did. I would say that these are the two sides. One is between you and God. The circumcision of your heart can do it anytime, anywhere. You don't have to be in church. You don't have to be anywhere specifically. The other one is between you and your fellow believer. I am making a declaration that my heart has been changed and I will follow the Lord. Therefore, I am following in the example of Jesus that I am baptized. And this would be, in my opinion, the sign of this new covenant. One can be baptized without ever circumcising their heart, without ever giving their heart to the Lord. That is why I will not full-fledged say that baptism is the sign of the new covenant because that does not put you into covenant with God. The sign was always to put you into covenant. And the only way you can do that is the circumcision of the heart. So you see, if you think back to everything when we talk about these other covenants, you see this fulfillment coming. You see it presenting itself. You see Jesus fulfilling a lot of these Old Testament commands. And then in Luke 22 is where we get to the communion part. And this is actually Passover, all right, which was way more in detail than what we take of as communion. But watch this. In verse 14, Luke 22 and verse 14. When the hour had come, he sat down and the twelve apostles with him. And then he said to them, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. We read this, these passages every time we take communion, right? You've got two things going on. The breaking of the bread and the drinking of the cup. The breaking of the bread is significant of his body. The drinking of the cup is the blood that is shed in the new covenant. Let's flip over to 1 Corinthians 11. This is the one that we always read. Paul's actually quoting Luke here. 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 23, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. 
There's a couple of things going on here. I mean, one, he's saying this is the cup of the new covenant, and he's referring to his blood that's getting ready to be shed, right? This is what we do with communion. Now, as I said before, some people take it to an overemphasis, and, and they, they believe that Jesus, there's, there, there's, Jesus is the bread, and he is the wine, to the point that if the wine were to spill on the ground, they would get on their knees and suck it out of the carpet. That's a little extreme, okay? Some won't take it quite that extreme, but they are very serious about it. On the other side, we almost halfway do it just because it's that time. We do it once a month and all of that. And I'm not saying that's our heart, but the circle that the church, the, the full gospel, the churches and things like that, typically don't emphasize enough because what are we doing? We're looking back to when that covenant was cut on our behalf. Look back in the Old Testament. Every time something significant happened, when Noah got off the boat, when Moses, uh, when they get to the, the area of the promised land after they go through and all that stuff, what do they always do? They set up an altar. They make a sacrifice so that they could remember the goodness of God. That's what we're doing every time we do it. We're remembering that Jesus' body was broken. Why was it broken? Isaiah 53. By His stripes... We are healed. His body was broken for that purpose. His blood was shed that you and I could be called the righteousness of God in Christ. That we are no longer separated from God, but now we are one in Him. And so you see the communion coming in here together. This isn't a sign of the new covenant. We're remembering the cutting of that covenant. When did this all get fulfilled? John chapter 19. I'm trying to hurry so I can finish. I'm sorry. John chapter 19. Verse 28, after this, Jesus knowing that all things were now accomplished. You could put the word fulfilled in there. That the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a hyssop, and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. When was it fulfilled? Right there. He said, it's finished. That hyssop is the exact same branch that Moses used, sprinkling the blood on the book and on the Israelites to cut the covenant with them, to bring in the Messiah. Y'all get excited by this? Because I get excited about this. I mean, it's one thing. You know I'm a science geek, right? I love science. I love proving how science proves God and all of that. We just need our Bibles. I mean, you think this happened on accident? These are thousands of years apart, and yet how all of this stuff came to fulfill all those things in the Old Testament. It is finished. All the types and all the prophecies of the Old Testament, which pointed to the suffering of the Messiah, and all of that was accomplished. When he says that the ceremonial law is, is abolished because the substance has now come. All the shadows to that, they're done away because now we have the substance. The end is made of transgression by bringing everlasting righteousness. His sufferings were finished. All the things that we had, the redemption of mankind, of salvation is all here. It is finished. How do we accept it? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. You're saved by grace through faith in Christ. How do we enter into that covenant? Same way they did. We circumcise our heart. We enter into that covenant with God. And as a declaration of that covenant to all of those around us, we get baptized with water. And if we want to follow the examples of the, the apostles, to do the works, to go into all the world and make disciples out of all nations, to do what Mark 16 says, that when we lay hands on the sick, they recover, 
Then we received the third baptism, which is the baptism of power. The Holy Spirit comes upon us. The Holy Spirit is in us. The Holy Spirit upon us. These are all things that were intended to go in unison. All things together. And the church has separated all of these out and made a jumbled mess out of all of it. I mean, I, I said this before, but it is amazing to me. And you go into some of these mainline denominations, you always see the systematic theology sitting on the book, pastor's bookshelf. And the one thing that seems to be missing out of every one of those is anything to do with Israel. It's gone. Because the church is Israel, in their opinion. I hope not. I hope not. Because what Israel is going in the end times, the church is gone. And I want to be gone. I don't want to be there for it. It's amazing when you look at what God has done and how He's established this and how He set it up and the intricacy and the details of every little line. It's like, my goodness, how do we miss this? We've turned this doctrine into, hey, love Jesus and be a good person. That's what we turned it into. It's what churches across the country preach. There's just sitting like, there is no, you know, you don't have to repent. You don't have to turn. Jesus died and life is good. Sound like a bunch of hippies. God is good. We're not. We're made righteous because of Him. 